Hey there, welcome to Tea with Mara. Thanks for seeking out these recordings and listening. My name is George, or you may know me in the metaverse as Kiyoki from Together with Trip. These recordings are from my live sessions in virtual reality and may sometimes feature other content. For the best experience of these sessions, you can join me in virtual reality. But when you can't, or if you want to go back and listen again, these audio or video recordings will be offered freely to all. To join us in VR or for the live broadcast on our Discord server, you can find our full schedule of events by visiting trip.com events, including instructions on how to join us in VR. You can even join in 2D mode from a computer. If you wish to support my teachings and these recordings, the best way to do that is to leave a review and share this podcast with others. And if you find value in them and you want to, you can make a donation offering right through the Two Hands Sangha website or soon through the podcast itself. All links should be found in the show notes. Now let's invite the bell and begin. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for choosing to be together to practice tonight. May it be of great benefit to all beings. For those of you following along, I've been playing the part of Mother Ginger in my daughter's Nutcracker Ballet all weekend. I was just talking about how busy I've been with that stuff. And you know, if you're not familiar with the story of Mother Ginger or the Nutcracker, and particularly of you know, why that character is portrayed by men who look like me, <laughs> big men, preferably with beards. Um, it, it's a, it's become a whole thing in that. And it's a pretty fun little story to get, to get into and Google it. But we wrapped up production yesterday and I was promptly showered, uh, and washed all the makeup off and raced over to Sangha, uh, and had a very nice time at Sangha last night. And then today I'm kind of getting back into my regular schedule. And tonight, as I was catching up on everything I've missed during the busy weekend, because I'm one of those people who like returns texts instantly, usually, and stuff like that. I'm, I'm very, very connected at all times. And uh, so it's very unusual for me to be out of touch. And I was so busy with the ballet at my daughter's thing this weekend that um I was very out of touch. And so I was catching up. And as I was scrolling through Facebook uh, on, on that portion of the catch up, I caught up on this this monastic that I follow, uh, a man named Kusala. And uh, a, a post of his caught my eye. And I've been on this compassion kick lately. You might recall I've mentioned a few times I've been listening to an audiobook by Dr. Kelly McGonigal and really enjoying it immensely. It's called The Science of Compassion. It's only about six or eight hours long, and I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, I'm not even done with it yet, and I'm really getting a lot out of it. But tonight, 
isn't really even coming from that book. It's just more that I've been, I've had sort of compassion on the brain lately and which is a good thing. <laughs> if you're going to have something on your brain, compassion is a good thing to have there. But I've had that going on a lot lately and, and boy, have I been drawing on compassion <laughs> a lot lately with Christmas shopping and holiday traffic and all of that. But with all of that on my mind so much, while I was catching up on things, I saw uh, Kusala's post and uh, he said, there's an age old question. Does wisdom lead to compassion faster than compassion leads to wisdom? And he does that a lot. He posts quotes like that and he'll put a random picture with it. And they either seem like they're perfect together or like they're completely opposites. And that's kind of his shtick, you know. But the question really caught my eye, mostly because there's a really obvious Buddhist outlook on it. Uh, but I thought I would I thought it would be fun to discuss that here tonight. So what do you think? Does wisdom lead to compassion faster than compassion leads to wisdom? Wisdom or panya or prajna, it, it comprises the portion of the Eightfold Path that contains wise understanding and wise intention. So it's the first two steps of the Eightfold Path. Wise understanding and wise intention. And karuna or compassion is one of the heart practices known as the Brahma Viharas. And Brahma Viharas means something like the place where the divine dwell or, or heavenly abodes, you'll hear it sometimes called, or uh, sometimes even the home of God. So you can tell from these, these divine sort of names for it that it's a very highly respected uh, kind of thing in, in the practice. So, you, you know, they, they might seem unrelated. And yet you've probably guessed by now that nothing in the Dharma is disconnected. It's all sort of interconnected. So let's explore that relationship between these two in our, in our practice. In the Theravada tradition, we often talk about the path to awakening or lasting happiness as a journey of cultivating both deep understanding and boundless love. We don't so much distinguish them as one leading to the other as much as we might talk about them both leading to lasting happiness. And sort of the unspoken thing is that they each lead to the other in ways. And thus it doesn't really matter, you know, too much which one you start with. You're going to get both. <laughs> you can start with either one and have no intention of cultivating the other, but you'll get it you'll end up with it because one of them produces the other. That's why I said the question caught my eyes because there's a fairly obvious answer, which is yes. <laughs> which one, which one is faster? Yes. They're both fast and they both lead to the other. So wisdom in Buddhism is the deep understanding of the true nature of phenomena the realization of the three marks of existence, which are impermanence or anicca, suffering, which is dukkha, and non-self, which is anatta. The wisdom is uh, not the kind that's just intellectual. It's a direct experiential understanding that transforms how we perceive ourselves and, and how we perceive the world. 
Vipassana and insight meditation lets us see things clearly. It kind of mm, gives us the space to notice things easier and see those things more um, as they are. Not how we project onto things, but how they really are. So we understand the transient nature of our experiences and how interconnected everything is, all things, all beings. This understanding is crucial because it liberates us from greed, hatred, and delusion, from the grasping and aversion that causes all of our suffering, which is called tanha. If you ever hear that word tanha, it's talking about the thirst that we have for things to stay like they are or be different than they are, which is where all of our suffering <laughs> comes from. It's the knowing of this interconnectedness, not just the knowledge of it, but the knowing. I saw something today that said, it's an old thing, but I saw a thing today that said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it on a fruit salad, you know, in a fruit salad. That's that's a good that's a good thing there but the knowing of this interconnectedness makes it an imperative for us to then have the proper intentions and to use that wisdom to carry out better karma or better actions so having that wisdom makes us uh, act in a more skillful way that wisdom gives rise to our wise actions and that same interconnectedness that we come to know plants the inevitable seed of compassion in our hearts as well. And it's going to grow. That's why I said you get both. When I was a kid, probably 10th grade in high school, I used to get into trouble in my English class a lot or well, just in class a lot, <laughs> in all classes a lot. Because while everyone was reading the assigned book in English, uh, I would have the book open on my desk, but underneath in my lap, I would have a Stephen King novel or something. And I would look like I was reading the book with my face buried in the school book, but really I was uh, reading the book in my lap, which was usually Stephen King. And the teacher would catch me and get on to me for it. And then he started realizing that I had already read the assignment and was reading for my own enjoyment. And he wasn't accustomed to that sort of a problem. Kids doing too much, not enough, you know. Uh, and most teachers would have just scolded me and told me to stick to the material. But this teacher asked me different questions, deeper questions. He also talked to my mother and he learned that I wasn't only reading the book for fun, he was a little concerned because I was young and reading Stephen King, but he was concerned that I wasn't, uh, you know, reading this bad material or whatever. And he found out I wasn't only reading it for fun. My, he found out my dad was dying of cancer and he was also blind and he loved to read. So he used to listen to what we would call audio books today, but back then they called them talking books. And, uh, my dad would listen to them and he loved Stephen King and also these Ellery Queen novels. And so I would read the same books that my dad was reading and we would discuss them and, and talk about them and spend time together 
doing something that didn't require him to have eyesight or physical you know, capacity. So when the teacher learned that, he didn't want to take that away from me. He encouraged it. He recommended books that we could read together, but that still served his school purposes as well. And it helped me out and my dad and I out in numerous different ways. So, see, his wise view was enhanced by compassion. His view of the situation was improved by compassion. And his compassion was enhanced by his wise view. And together they kind of leveled him up as a teacher, as a human, uh, so that he found a way to take more meaningful actions on all of our behalf, you know, on, on behalf of all of us involved. Instead of only serving his own needs as a teacher, he served the student, the teacher, and the parents. It's easy to make poor choices when we're ignorant of wise ones or ignorant of the causes and conditions of a certain situation. But when you know the right thing to do, it becomes more difficult to choose unskillfully. So wisdom leads to compassion in that way. Compassion, on the other hand, is the heartfelt response to the suffering of ourselves and others. It's not merely an emotional feeling it's an active principle that guides our actions. In the Theravada tradition, metta, or loving kindness meditation, which is again one of those Brahma Viharas, it nurtures the seed of compassion within us. That's the foundation of what you've probably heard me say before about how when love meets pain, compassion arises. As we practice, our hearts begin to open. And we develop this genuine desire to alleviate the suffering that we meet, whether it's our own or someone else's. Compassion moves us to act selflessly, to serve, and to offer loving kindness without expecting anything in return. It softens the ego, it dissolves barriers, it fosters a feeling of interconnectedness with all beings. And if you're paying attention earlier, the, the, the wisdom of that interconnectedness makes compassion inevitable. So you're starting to see how these two things are inseparable from one another. While wisdom and compassion are distinct qualities on their own, the, in, in actual practice, they support and enhance one another in all these ways we've talked about. Wisdom is kind of the foundation of compassion. True compassion arises from the wise understanding of the nature of suffering. So they hold one another. When we see how we're all subject to the same kind of suffering, our hearts kind of naturally respond with empathy and with kindness. It's a, what's this? There's some teacher that says it's, it's that feeling of the fluttering of the heart when we see someone else in pain. Or, uh, yeah, there's some really beautiful ways it's been talked about, but 
Anyhow, compassion can be an expression of wisdom, or maybe it's even safe to say that compassion always expresses wisdom. So as our wisdom deepens, it kind of naturally manifests as compassion, understanding how everything is connected. We can't help but feel a deep connection or deep caring for others. We can't help but feel compelled to try and relieve them of their suffering. Where we see pain, we must try and help. And that doesn't mean that we can help, by the way, but we will feel compelled to, you know. I guess it's it's worth noting that, you know, that sometimes doing nothing, or at least appearing to do nothing, can also be compassionate. Let's not forget that people don't always need action on our part. Sometimes they simply need to be seen or heard. Uh, sometimes listening to someone or being with someone, you know, in their suffering is the compassionate choice, is the wise choice. Compassion becomes the spontaneous expression of wisdom, moving us to act in ways to alleviate that suffering when we meet it, to try and bring joy. So which one is faster? I think it's more of a koan than a question with an answer. I don't think it even matters. If you pick one and embody it, you'll get them both. And there's no reason to stick with just one. Practice both. (laughs) Maybe you'll get there twice as fast. But I can definitely tell you that compassion and wisdom will both help you with your holiday shopping. I verified that today. (laughs) By the way, it's worth noting too that the Buddha knew you needed both of these things. He said wisdom and compassion are like the two wings of a bird. They both are essential for the journey that you make toward lasting happiness. And you may recall, I, I just talked about that just recently. I did a whole talk on the two wings of the Dharma. So really on this whole topic. So you know, as we go toward the path of lasting happiness for us, you know, we want to work on cultivating both of these things. If you do, you can't go wrong. Let's allow our understanding to inform our hearts and our hearts to guide our understanding. And I think I'll keep it short and end there uh, and we'll do a longer meditation tonight. So go ahead and find yourself uh, relaxing and taking on or I should say letting go into a posture that's comfortable and supportive for you. And as you're letting go of all the struggles and stresses of the day and relaxing into 
whatever posture you're going to maintain. If you want to, if it feels safe for you, I always encourage people to close their eyes while meditating, but it really doesn't matter. It's whatever is comfortable for you. I like to close my eyes. If I don't close them, I, I generally keep them sort of slightly open and focused a little down and in front of me. And let yourself take a few deep breaths with long, slow out breaths. Whenever you breathe in, feeling a sense of calm entering your body. And on the out breath, letting go of any tension or stress you feel anywhere in the body, anywhere that your body is begging for your attention, you know, we, we call that pain or discomfort. If you have any of those places in the body right now, you can bring your attention to that and just notice it, let go of it if you're able. Even if you can't let go of the pain, just looking at the pain, so to speak, or giving it your attention and just acknowledging that it's there without resisting it, without judging it, uh, sometimes we'll either let it go away or at least it will come undone. It will break apart. Because pain isn't, pain and discomfort is not a thing. It's a collection of things. You know, when we feel, uh, whatever, I don't have any pain in the body right now, but sometimes I have back pain. So if I feel, say, a lower right back pain, instead of going, oh, my lower right back hurts. Instead, in meditation, we notice, we say, okay, well, there's, there's discomfort in the lower area of my back. Let me give that my attention, my full attention. How does it feel? What, what's it doing? Now oh, that lower back pain might feel like, you know, some heat. Might be some tightness or some constriction there. And some prickly feelings. You know, it could be all sorts of things. But when you notice the individual pieces that make it up, it kind of cracks it open and breaks it apart. And instead of a thing called pain, it becomes a bunch of little things that aren't so bad, actually. And so the pain may not leave you, especially if it's chronic pain. A lot of us deal with chronic pain and things like that, and it's not going to leave necessarily but by not resisting it and not thinking uh you know not judging it oh how terrible it is by just noticing it oh i see i see that there's pain there i see discomfort there i see that it's made up of these smaller portions 
and recognizing each of those. And sometimes those are made up of smaller portions. And pretty soon the whole thing kind of eases up and lets loose a little bit. So do that throughout the body as you need to. And then when you're ready, whenever you've done that throughout the body, breathed in and breathe longer, slower out breaths and relax the body and acknowledge the tensions and discomforts of the body and worked through all of that and you're somewhat more solid and stable and ready for meditation, you can start to center, start to ground yourself a little bit. You can notice the feeling of the earth beneath you. And I don't mean the ground. I mean whatever is supporting you right now. In my case, a, a cushion. Beneath that, a floor. Beneath that, a garage. <laughs> beneath that, a foundation. And then beneath that, the earth. supporting you and with each breath allowing yourself to become more aware of how you know we're all in different parts of the world and yet we're all connected through the same point the earth and with each breath allowing yourself to Feel this a little more, being a little more aware of this moment, where you are. And taking a moment to acknowledge that, you know, this moment is a gift. You're lucky to have this moment here right now and all the moments that you have here and now, each in their respective place. And you're also fortunate that you have the, the gift of being able to take this time to reflect internally and, and to, you know, grow spiritually. And when you're ready, you can start turning your attention to doing a little bit of that compassion cultivation I talked about. Karuna Bhavana. You can begin by bringing to mind somebody that you care about deeply. You picture them very clearly in your mind. And as you focus on this person, you sort of contemplate their life. their joys and their struggles. And you recognize that like you, they experience happiness, pain, longing. Actually, the that compassion audiobook I've been listening to 
where I'm at in the book right now. That's exactly what she's suggesting as a practice is a practice called just like me, just like me. Everyone else experiences uh, suffering and dissatisfaction. Just like me, everyone else wants to be happy. And we can silently wish this person that we brought to mind well and repeat some phrases in your mind. It can be whatever phrases you like. I'll just use, may you be happy, may you be free from suffering, and may you be at ease, may you find peace. It can be anything that works for you. Feeling the warmth of compassion radiating from your heart, like a big glowing bright light warming outward. Feeling the warmth of this compassion just radiating, enveloping that person in kindness and love. May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be at ease. And then that person that we've bathed in that radiating glow from our heart, of compassion, we can begin expanding that, uh, turning up the brightness, <laughs> shining it even further out on more people, friends. Think of some of your friends. And sometimes people get this notion in their head. They think, oh, well, I don't have any friends. Yes, you do. If you think you don't, just look around you right now. If you think anybody here is not your friend, look up here at me. I don't see anyone in here right now that I don't consider a friend. So if you think that, you know, you, you don't have even anyone you can think of as a friend to expand that circle of compassion. Look up here. Look around you. You do. You can include family if you have people that you think of as family, whether it's your actual family or the people you've chosen as family. Sometimes our chosen family is more family than our, our actual family. Expand it to include even random acquaintances, people we don't really know that well. May you all be safe, happy, and at ease, free from suffering.
and then on the outer edge of that circle, lurking out there, you can barely see them. Crank that radiance up a little higher where you can see those people a little better and you'll see that the difficult people are out there. The ones that we keep on the edge of our, <laughs> the edges of our love and compassion. Sometimes we don't really feel like we want to include them, but we must. If we're, if everything is connected, we can't love some and not all, right? Even the difficult ones, even those friends that let us down, those family members that disappointed us, those politicians that don't have our interests at heart, those, you know, bad people who do bad things. They do those bad things. They make those poor choices because they're misguided. They're confused. The Buddha said that all of those people cause suffering because they're confused. They have dust in their eyes. If maybe if people showed them compassion and love and kindness and all of these things, then maybe they wouldn't be so confused. We can hope. We have to try, or there's uh, not much purpose in doing it, right? May all beings be safe happy, at ease, free from suffering. All beings, just like me, all beings wish to be happy and free from suffering. And then you can start shifting your focus from compassion to wisdom. Contemplating the impermanent nature of life. Recognizing that there is nothing in this world that's permanent. I always find it interesting because I'm always curious to see if people argue that point because there is nothing that is permanent and I defy anyone to show me otherwise. I haven't found it yet. You know, I always think that somebody will argue with it, but I always think also that we all really know. We do. We know that it's true. Nothing is permanent. I think it makes people a little uncomfortable to acknowledge that sometimes. And so understanding that impermanence and understanding that it's the defining characteristic of our human experience and that it connects all of us. We all have that in common. There is no one who experiences the world as permanent. No one. Reflect on how this kind of gives you a deeper sense of compassion. 
nobody gets out alive. <laughs> Think about your own experiences of joy and of suffering and how they've given you insight, wisdom. And let those insights expand your you know, empathy. Let them deepen your connection to all these other beings. Just like you, they want to be happy. Allow your wisdom to inform your compassion. Your compassion to inform your wisdom. Feel how you're knowing your direct experience of impermanence leads to a direct experience of interconnectedness too, and vice versa, deepens your compassion. And if, you, if you're not feeling that, that's okay too. You're not doing anything wrong. Just keep doing it. It'll get there. I can promise you, but you shouldn't believe me. That's what the Buddha said. He said, this is what's true. Now come and see for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Do the practice and you will see that it's true. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe yourself. Do the practice and learn that these things are true. Know, come to know with your own direct experience that these things are true, and then believe that. Don't believe me. Believe that. Because you know it. You've heard me say it before, but just a little while ago, I commented on somebody's post somewhere, and I, they said, they, they suggested a teacher who I know to be unskillful. Let's just be polite and say unskillful. And I saw they recommended this teacher and I said, hey, you know, I love everything you said, but that recommendation, I would say, follow the teachings, not the teacher. It's good to have a teacher. It's good to trust a teacher but follow the teachings, invest in the teachings. The teachings will never steer you wrong. Teachers might, they're human, they suffer too. Follow the teachings, not the teacher. Hopefully you have teachers who embody the Dharma. Even if they're not Dharma teachers, they still, if they're good, 
people, they're doing good things, then they're embodying the things they're teaching. And if so, they can be trusted. But even if they don't, even if they can't, even if they aren't, the teachings are always embodying. The teachings are the teachings. They can't go wrong. So in the last little bit of this meditation, as we start coming to a close and take a few more deep breaths and some long, slow out breaths again, letting the mind move back into its normal way of being, (laughs) surrounded with a little more compassion and wisdom. Until next time, you know. You can bring to mind that feeling of warmth and connectedness and that radiant heart. You can sort of begin to let the eyes open and the toes wiggle and stretch if you need to. And as I suggested earlier, I'd suggest again looking around the space and seeing you know, all the people that showed up while you were meditating with your eyes closed, with more people here and noticing. I don't know if you ever notice, sometimes I look around the room when I'm not talking. And it's because I'm looking at each person and thinking of my connection to that person. Some of you might not even know what that is. (laughs) You might think, oh, well, I don't have any connection with Kyoki, but I think you do. There's nobody here that I can't look at and think, oh, I love when I see that person. And I think of, it makes me think of, you know, whatever it is. Do that. That's, even if they don't know it, it's strengthening your connection with them.
You're still here? It's over. Go practice. Go. Chickala.